Easter series today. And so I hope you brought your Bibles to church today, John chapter 13. And uh, we're going to begin this uh, four-part series uh, that I have titled The Journey uh, to Easter. Uh, A Journey to Easter. And uh, what we're going to try to do uh, over the next four weeks is kind of walk through uh, the the 24 hours prior to Jesus uh, dying on the cross. And then, of course, Easter Sunday we'll celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ. And, And so over the next... Uh, three weeks or so, what we'll do is we'll look at what it means, the, the people that uh, Jesus encountered and, and the excitement uh, that Easter uh, brings to us and, and all of the outreach, all of the effort that we get to put in, all of that good stuff. But, but right now, uh, what we are on over the next few weeks is what I like to call uh, a journey to Easter. It's my favorite time of the year. Uh, I've said it every year that I have uh, been able to lead a church as a pastor. Like, this is uh, leading up to Super Bowl Sunday uh, for a pastor. Uh, I I love Easter Sunday morning. Like, if I can't hit a home run on Easter Sunday, then I don't need to be behind the pulpit as your pastor. And so I look forward to Easter Sunday, look forward to celebrating that day with you. Easter is all about the resurrection of Christ. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at Honestly, the life of Jesus, and, and not, not just the whole life of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to zero in on uh, what Jesus was doing in that last 24 hours, really at the Last Supper, uh, maybe looking at the garden, uh, looking at the arrest of Jesus, all of that in, in the last moments of Jesus' life. And what's interesting uh, to me is in the Gospels is that they're pretty much just these biographies of the life of Christ. If you, if you really read them and you really study them, uh, they're really just about the life of Christ. And if you've been reading through the Bible, through the New Testament with us this year, uh, that in our Bible plan, uh, today we start Luke chapter 1 as a church. So if you haven't started on the Bible plan, or maybe you've come and you're like, well, I didn't even know we were doing a Bible plan, today's your day to start because today we start Luke chapter 1. So it's a perfect day to start. Uh, It's literally about a chapter a day, and if you read a chapter a day from now until the end of the year through the New Testament, you should finish at the end of Revelation at the end of the year. And so you're going to be going through the Gospels with us, and and what's cool is uh, by the time we get to Easter Sunday, uh, we'll be reading about Resurrection Sunday. And, and, And that's just how things work. That's how cool it is to read through the Bible. And so you're going to find out and study the life of Jesus. The majority that we know about Jesus happened in the final moments of the final days of Jesus' life. Actually, a lot of it dealt with the final week in Jesus' life as he was getting ready to go on the cross. We, we don't even have time to really go through the whole week in the next three weeks. We, we don't have time for it. Uh, you think the marriage series was long. Uh, let, let me preach through the life of Jesus. Uh, it, it would take a long time to go through it. But if we read through the Gospel of John, we're going to find that about 60% of John's Gospel dealt with the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry prior to Him dying on the cross. And so what I feel compelled to do this year, as we study leading up to Easter Sunday morning, is really honing in on what was Jesus doing those last 24 hours. 
what was Jesus really doing? How, how was he living his life? Literally, John 13 through 18 is about a 24-hour time span surrounding the last day of Jesus' life. So this is my question to you this morning. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, how would you spend today? How would you spend today? If you knew that your time on earth would be ending tomorrow, who would you be spending your time with? What would you be spending your time doing? What kind of information would you be telling people that needs to be told? I think that we can all agree this morning that we would spend those moments very carefully and very wisely. Now, I have lived long enough now. I'm 31. Uh, I have lived long enough now that I have had uh, practically every grandparent that I've had in my life pass away. And it's, um, it's very sad to me in this phase of my life that when it comes time for holidays, I don't have a grandparent to go see anymore. But I have seen my parents really struggle when it came to death of their parents, especially when it came to the wills and all of that and stuff. They didn't have life insurance. They didn't have every they didn't have it planned out. And so, like when I think about what kind of information would I be telling people that that maybe needs to be told, like I want to tell Tip all of my passwords, like today. I want to give her all of the information. Like, here it is. Like, here's the policy I've been hiding from you. <laughs> if she knew the life insurance policy I had, she might would kill me right now. So it's like, like, here you go. You know, here's the keys. You know, because you want your loved ones to know about everything, right? Like, we, we, want, them to, we want them to be comfortable. We want them to know. We want, we want them to not have the stress. But here's, here's the situation. Like, Jesus knew everything. He was giving the disciples all of the information. But were the disciples even buying it? They didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to understand it. They didn't want to give Jesus the time or the place. And the same thing in, in Jesus' life in this passage that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks as we uh, lead up to this special time of Easter. Jesus knew that His time on earth would be coming to a close. He knew that it was going to be about going to a cross. He knew that his closest friends were going to betray him in just a matter of hours. He's being very careful in these very last moments of his life, the way that he teaches, these examples that he's uh, trying to give, the, the prayers that the man's trying to pray. You remember in the garden when Jesus is like, hey, I need you to do one thing. I need you to be watchful while I go pray. They couldn't even do it. <laughs> they, they went to sleep. They, they couldn't even do the one thing the man asked them to do. And, and it's almost as if he, he really wants his disciples to understand and to get what he's doing and why he's doing it. And so we're going to just kind of walk through it together next Sunday. Uh, Benny's going to lead you through 
uh, the preaching time. He's going to kind of pick up right where I, I leave off. And uh, next Sunday, I get an opportunity to uh, to go share at a church about church planting. And uh, it's going to be local. I'm going to be here. And then, and then I'm going to kind of slip out halfway through the service while he's preaching. And um, I just get an opportunity to, to go to a local church and to uh, the, the, the talk to them about, about planting churches and um, just what we've been able to do and, and to share about the Annie Armstrong Easter offering that we're taking up right now as a church. And, and so Benny's going to kind of kind of leave off where I where I where I or, or kind of lead on where I leave off today. And uh, as we as we look at this celebration of, of Jesus and in John 13, we get to see this unusual example um, Honestly, of humility by Jesus himself towards his disciples. We're going to start in verse 1 of John 13. And this is a, a very familiar passage. Like, you're going, to, you're going to know at the time I start reading it. And, and, and this is what God's word said, John 13, verse 1. Now, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We're going to stop right there for a moment. Let, let's talk a second about this thought of the Passover. Maybe, maybe we're new to the Scripture this morning, maybe, maybe new to, to studying the Bible. The Passover was uh, this huge festival, uh, this, this big celebration, this huge holiday of the Jewish people. Uh, they were remembering something that uh, God had done for them many, many, many uh, generations ago, we're not talking year. We're talking generations. Some of them, some of you will remember this story all the way back in the book of Exodus. We've got to go all the way back to the second book of the Bible. God's people, the the Jewish people, are, are enslaved to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Alicia, I always remember this story because Alicia taught this at Bible school the first year uh, that we were that we were here in this building, and and I and I got to to be in the play that that night and and got to be with the kids and and God was um and God God's God's talking to Moses and he sends Moses and God God goes to Pharaoh or Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says Pharaoh Pharaoh let my people go, let my people go and Pharaoh says what. No. And every time I think of this story, I remember opening those back doors and screaming at the kids, No! And the kids would go running back down the aisle. You know? And, and, and they would do that over and over and over. And, every, and, and it'll be forever graved into my mind. But, but the Bible says Pharaoh's heart was so hardened that day, and he does not let the people go. And so they're continued to be enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt. So what does God do? He then sends a series of plagues. And every time a new plague came into the world around the Bible, it says Pharaoh's heart was again hardened. The final plague was the death of the firstborn. And God gave his people some very specific instructions at that point. He told them they were to take the blood from the lamb and they were to take the blood from the lamb and they were going to put it onto the doorpost. And when the death angel came over, if the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost, then they would be left alone. Their homes would be spared. 
their children would not die. But if the blood was not there, then they would be in deep, deep trouble. Picture the imagery here. Now we go back to the New Testament. The blood from the lamb that is brought from them was salvation into their home. Do we see the similarities here? From, from what we see in the New Testament with Jesus dying on the cross as the substitute is shedding of His blood for all mankind. It's the, it's the foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus who is the Lamb of God. Jesus would go to the cross to be the substitute, to be the sacrifice as our Lamb, as our atonement. His blood would save us from all of our sin. That was the whole entire picture here. So here are these people celebrating this Passover. The Passover that they had no idea at the time they were even celebrating this Passover would be the same time that Jesus would go to the cross. How cool is that? I guess not cool enough because we didn't get a single amen on that. So, so Jesus and the disciples, let's see if we can keep going. Jesus and the disciples, they're gathered into this room. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 5. Supper being ended. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Simon's son to betray him. Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come from God and was going to God rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, seems to be a very odd day to spend your last day, does it not? Like, can you imagine? Jesus is, is God, though. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Hard to wrap our minds around what is going on. The, the Trinity being God, the Father, God the Son, which is Jesus, God the Holy Spirit who dwells here among us today. Jesus being the member of the Trinity, the Bible says that He was God from the very beginning. He had His hand in creation, speaking things into existence. So the picture here is that you had Jesus, who is God, on His hands and knees being a servant, and washing the feet of his very creation. So powerful. What a, what a powerful moment. What, what is so interesting, though, is that of all the people in the room, to me, Jesus should have been the very last one that should have ever been washing anybody's feet. But yet, he was the one doing it. Because that's just who he is. If anything, it should have been the disciples washing the feet of Jesus. Like, those 12 should have, like, been taking, well, there's only 10 toes, but they should, they should have been figuring out, what toe am I taking? Like, they should have been drawing straws because they're at the feet of Jesus. This was the way it worked back then. Think about it. Often when people walked into your home, your feet was very dirty. You didn't have sneakers to put on your feet. You didn't have shoe stores to go to. Most of the time, people were barefoot or they wore sandals. If you, if you were wealthy, you had sandals. If you weren't wealthy, you didn't have shoes. There was no sidewalk to be walking on. They didn't have concrete companies back then. Think about it. There were long, dusty roads. People walked around with dark and dirty feet, and it wasn't because they had a nice suntan. 
It was just dirty feet all the time. And so when you went into a home, the person that typically washed their feet was a slave. Or the person that was lowest on the totem pole. That person would grab the towel, grab the basin, and they would be the one to get on their hands and their knees, and they would wash the feet of the guests. And here's the setting with Jesus and the disciples in John 13. They're in a borrowed room. There was nobody to wash their feet. Okay, think about, think about you going down to the Mexican restaurant after church today to go eat lunch, and you rented out this room to go have a nice meal, and they, they set the table for you, but that was it. You do the rest of the work. That's what they did. They went to the upper room. They rented out this space, but they didn't rent out the foot washer. They didn't rent out the, the people that set the table. They literally had the room, and that was it. That's all they had. There was no slave. There was no lowly hand. There's no one there. Now, in Luke's account, if you read the Gospel of Luke, of this very same story, it talks about the disciples being in an argument. They're, they're sitting there arguing about who's going to wash the feet. And I laugh at that. But wouldn't that be us? Wouldn't we be the same way? If you read the Gospels, you'll read that the disciples did this periodically. They, they, they were in arguments all the time. It was an ego thing. Like, who's, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the best? Typical people. Some of you ladies would say, no, it's typical men. Typical men, one-upping each other. Positioning yourself to be the greatest. Can I just stop here for a second? There's not one of us in this place this morning that is greater than the other. I've said it over and over again. When you walk into the threshold of Cross Life Church, we're on the same playing field. When, when, when we walk through the front door of this church, the ego needs to be left there too. And that's what's happening in this moment. You, you get 12 people in a room together. You get 12 different opinions. You get 12 different outfits. You get 12 different individuals, 12 different mindsets. And this is what happens. It's competitiveness. I get it. That's what's happening with the disciples. Even the competition is getting to them. They haven't left their ego at the door. And, and now it's affecting the group at large. They're literally looking around, trying to find the least among them to wash each other's feet. When literally they could just say, hey, I'll wash yours if you wash mine. They didn't have common sense. <laughs> they like, if everybody just takes one, hey, we're done. And then, hey, we'll, we'll all take a stab at Jesus. No, we can't do that. They're looking at each other like, are you serious? I ain't washing your feet. I helped you out last night. You can wash mine. They're sitting there wondering who's going to serve them. They may be looking at Peter and saying, no, nah, maybe, maybe it's him. I heard, I heard Jesus call him Satan one time. Maybe, maybe Peter should do it. No, no, maybe it should be, it should be John. He... You know, somebody else speaks up. I think Matthew should do it. He's the tax collector in the group. And man, he snores at night. I don't know. Like They're, they're probably always arguing in situations like this on who's going to grab the towel and the basin to wash feet. And while they're sitting there arguing, 
Jesus is already off to the side grabbing the bucket, grabbing the towel, and he's already bringing it over and starting to wash their feet. And that doesn't Jesus do that over and over and over again? And isn't that what he does in our life over and over and over again? While we're sitting here trying to figure out what we're going to do, he's over here off to the side and he's already gathering the stuff up, trying to figure it out for us already. He's like, I got it. You're over here in chaos and I'm over here. I've already got it all worked out. And we're all over here to pieces. I operate in pieces a lot of days. But Jesus puts my pieces together. You know, if anybody knows me and you see me in the middle of the week, most of the time I'm in pieces. Like, if you walk into my office in the middle of the week and, and, you, and you catch me at the right time, I've got book upon book on the desk. I've got paper scattered everywhere. I've got 12 different things going on. I've got one mind, and I know all that's going on. But if you walk into my office, you're like, what in the world is he doing? But I've got my mind on it. I know exactly what I'm doing. Jesus has already got it all worked out. And here I am, like, how am I going to get all of these things done in one day? Jesus is like, I got it. And this is the disciples. They're over here trying to figure things out. Probably like this every day. And Jesus is probably like, here we go again. Here we go again. They're going to sit there, yep, they're going to call Matthew the tax collector again. I've heard that joke before. Oh, they, they called Peter Satan again. Here we go. Let me get the bucket. Let me show them how it's done. Let me be a servant. Why would Jesus do that? Why would, why would he spend so much time being the servant? I want you to understand something. Jesus even washed Judas's feet. We're going to see in just a moment in verse 11 that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him before he even got down on his hands and knees to do that. He knows in a matter of hours, Judas is going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. That's going to, going to let him live comfortably for about a month and a half. Jesus knows that his heart isn't going to change. It would never change. And yet Jesus bows down knowingly and washes the feet of his own betrayer. That's not the way that I would want to spend my final days. I don't, I don't know about you. I, I wouldn't be inviting that guy to dinner with me on my final day of life. But that's what Jesus does. That's the difference between the God I serve and who I am. That's why he's God and I'm not. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he spend so much time with his betrayer? Why would he spend so much time pouring into him and then humbly inviting him to come to dinner knowing that Judas isn't going to change? I think the answer is that, Ju that Jesus is, is showing us an example here of who he is. How he's going to love people around him whether it's going to be a friend or an enemy. And our motivation for service should not be whether it's going to be uh, this great return, although that's great to have. 
It's not to see people change and to make them be something that we want them to be. Although it's always a great to make us feel better when that, when that does happen. Our motivation to serve should only bring glory to God. That should be the only reason we serve. In the meantime of serving, if that means that people are changed, then great. If that means it brings a great return on an investment, then great. It's glory to God. If it's worship to our Father, God recognizes, God sees that in our humble acts of service, it brings worship to our Lord and Savior. And, and if, you, if you serve only in hopes that, that people will notice you, or if you serve in hopes that, that people are going to change because of you, what's going to happen is that you're going to serve for a season, and then you're going to back out. You're going to serve for three, maybe six months, maybe, maybe even a year. And you're going to say, Thomas, I've got to back out. Because your heart won't in it. Your, your full heart won't in it. You, you won't in it for longevity because it was for a self-gain and not a kingdom gain. What's going to happen is you're going to get tired, you're going to get frustrated, and you're going to get burned out. And you're going to be asking the question, what's the point? In all of this. Sometimes people will listen and change, and sometimes people don't. It just happens. That's part of life. Sometimes people recognize, and sometimes people just don't. Leadership can be a lonely place sometimes, if you've ever been in leadership. And our motivation can't be for the affection or the attention. It can't, it can't be for the hopes that somebody's going to change or whatever's going to take place. It's all about humbly serving and worship to our God. It isn't about ministry or another ministry being greater or being greater than another ministry. All ministries are on the same playing field. Like from the top to the bottom in this church, we're all the same. All ministries in this church are, 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 are in this one big circle. Like they all work together. They all make the wheels turn. It all brings glory to our king. And so Jesus is setting this great example here. It, it, he, he was... He was showing that in the midst of all of this, he's the greatest. And nothing else mattered. Jesus was greatest. He humbly serves in this moment just as he had done throughout his earthly ministry, being low, washing the feet of his very own creation. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So, so Peter does what Peter always does. Peter's, Peter's questioning Jesus. Peter's good at that. Okay, Kind of like I am. I'm, I'm always questioning. I'm always asking questions. If I'm in a meeting, okay, I'm always the bad guy. I'm always the one to ask questions. If I'm in, it doesn't matter if I'm at a state meeting, it doesn't matter if I'm at a local meeting, it doesn't matter if I'm at a round table meeting, I'm going to be the person to raise my hand and say, I've got a question. Just who I am. Because I want to know the details. Anybody else like that? Kelly, you can put your hand in. We, we know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, we, 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 we ask questions because we want to know answers, right? 
we, we just want we just want to know we, we really we really already know what we were about to ask. We just want to clarify. And that's how I am. I, I want to clarify. And so so Peter Peter's asking this question. He kind of already knows the answer. He already knows what Jesus is doing. And he's like, Why are you washing my feet? Peter Peter knows that. Peter knows who Jesus is. He he's seen it time and time again. And Jesus is like, I'm not even going to waste my time on you right now. I'm not going to waste my breath on you again because I've told you over and over and over, but you're going to understand later. You'll get it. You'll get it in a moment. So this is how the, the will of God in our life typically works, right? The will of God is often not seen in the foresight, it's seen in the hindsight. I, I know a lot of people that are in that mode where they say they're searching for God's will in their life. They're asking the question, what does God really want me to do? They're searching for answers. They're wondering what they should do or where they should land or what they're going to do next. They're, they're looking for the secret formula to finding God's will in their life. And what I tell them is often God's plan and God's will is often not seen in the foresight. It's hard, it's hard to see it. Like, it is hard to see five years down the road where Thomas is going to be. It's hard to see five, down the, five years down the road where my wife is going to be. It's hard to see that. It's often seen in the hindsight. Mainly because as we travel through today, we aren't asking ourselves in every decision that we make, is this God's will? Like, did anybody go to a convenience store this morning? What did you get? When you got that stick of gum, did you say, is this God's will for me to get this gum? See? Prime example. Anybody go get dinner last night? Did you ask if it was God's will for you to go get dinner at that certain restaurant? No. We just go do it. You see what I'm saying? Like, we don't, we don't ask God's will on everything. We just do it, and then... And then if we end up in the hospital later because we ate something that was bad, it's like, well, I guess this was God's will. <laughs> See how that works? It's usually in the hindsight. And so before you know it, we've made ten decisions that weren't God's will and later out finding, finding out things the hard way. Can, can I just say this? Sometimes God is waiting on us to take the step of faith, and then he says, I'm going to show you the plan. Sometimes, if we just take the step of faith, he says, I'll show you the plan. But it's taking that first step to say, God, I'm trusting you. And, and the more you take a step, the easier it is. Like, if, if I told you, right at the end of that door is God's plan for your life, would you go? Like, like if I said, if you go to that, if you go to that door today, God's plan is waiting for you. Everybody would line up right now and go to that door. Maybe even if I told you God's plan is at that door tomorrow, we would all line up to go to that door. But if I told you God's plan is at that door five years from now, we would all sit right where we're at and we would wait. Does that make sense? Like we want God's plan now, but we don't want to wait patiently for it for five years. So, so as, we, as we focus on what his plan is, and we try to figure out God's will for our life, isn't it just easier to say, all right, God, I'm going to take a step of faith, and I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to let you guide me. 
And I promise you, the, the more that you do that, the easier that becomes. Because look, I took my, my hands off the wheel a long time ago, and thank God I did. Because, I, because Thomas messes things up fast. And I'm so glad when I took my hand off the wheel, I don't have to stress about that anymore. I stress about everything else, but I don't have to stress about that no more. Like, I know that where I am at is where I'm supposed to be. Now, everything else that's, that's happening in life, I told somebody this morning, like, April the 10th is what I've got my eyes set on. Like, I'm just trying to get through Easter Sunday morning. Like, on e after Easter Sunday, I can breathe a little more. But, but that's, how, that's how my life operates, just trying to, just trying to get through. And so God can continue to work and take that step. I've shared my story before. Some of you, some of you are still learning who I am, but um, I'll, I'll I'll share a little bit about uh, about myself really quick. Um, so back in 2009, when I was studying at Fruitland, God God put it on my heart that I would do this thing called church planting. It was really weird. Uh, 2009, church planting was not cool. Uh, nobody was doing it. Um, it wasn't ever really heard of. Uh, people, there were there were church plants, but it, it just wasn't it wasn't as popular as it is now. I didn't really know what it meant. I was 18 years old, uh, and so God God made it pretty clear though, and He put it on my heart, and He said, "You're going to go into a church that is dead, and you're going to bring life." I remember that at 18 years old, I'm sitting in Thad Daddle's class, Dr. Thad Daddle. I'll never forget it. Sitting in the front row, I was a good student. You got to pick where you wanted to sit. I always sat in the front row. I bet Benny was a back rower. Uh, but I sat in the front row because I knew if I sat in the back row, that was going to cause trouble. Uh, I remember my days in high school, sat in the back row, never, never got my work done. So when I got to Fruitland, I was like, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to sit in the front row. I'm going to be a goody boy. I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to stay out of trouble. So I sat in the front row, and I remember sitting at that, looking at Thad Daddle. He's teaching hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Don't ask me what it means. Uh, and, 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 he's, and he's teaching the class, and God's like, Thomas, I have a plan for you. You're going to go into a church that is dead, and you're going to bring life. And I'm like, God, what, is, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? And, and he's like, you're going you're gonna to go plant a church. And so the first response to that was like, God, why me? <laughs> like out of all the people in the world, out of all the people that you've called, why me? And then my second response was, there's much better people that you can use for that. So I began to do my own thing, just like many people do. I go my separate way. And, and, and so I began to uh, do youth ministry and and the Lord was blessing in that, and uh, many times in my in my in my positions, I would get very frustrated. God was blessing. Uh, God God would bless the ministry that I was doing, but I would get so frustrated with God, and I would ask God the same question more often than not. And I would say, "Why, God?" But but it was at the point where I felt God would make me feel absolutely miserable in ministry until I would say yes to this call. Until I realized where he wanted me to be. In Thomas's mind, planting a church was not on the radar at all. And so I did that for eight years. Was around doing youth ministry. Tip and I got to the opportunity to do it for, what, three years in youth ministry, I guess, from 2014 to about 2016 at West End Baptist. Had great ministry there. 
Lord moved in powerful ways. God called us to Grundy, uh, was, was a, a senior pastor there, uh, led us there. God was doing great things there. I'm like, all right, this is it. And then here I am in the middle of Bible school. Once again, a bunch of kids, kids getting saved left and right. Miss, Miss uh, uh, Carol's brother, Curtis, was in my office one night, and I look at Curtis, and I'm like, Curtis, I got to talk to you, man. And we sit down and talk, and I was like, look, God, God's calling me to do something, and I don't get it, and you won't get it, but we'll get it together. Started crying on his shoulder. He, like, God's calling me to plant a church, and he won't, he won't stop talking to me about it. He's like, he's calling me to do this thing called a dead church and bring it life or something like that. And uh, it was like over and over and over. And, and even while we were in South Africa, like being around Tiffany's family, God, God said it again, pressing on home, Thomas, you're going into a church that is dead and you're going to bring life. Like over my ministry of 12 years at that time, now going on about 14 years of ministry, I heard that saying in my mind over and over and over, you're going into a church that is dead and you're going to bring life. I can probably tell you a dozen times or more that that was pressed on my heart. And did you know we get into Spencer, North Carolina, and we walk into this church that's dead, and God says, you're going to bring life. And we come onto this campus, and it's a dead church, and you're going to bring life. And you, you see, all of this to say that when God calls you to it, and when you take a step of faith, after all of those years, God will bring you back to it if it's His will. All of that to say that He will mold you, that He will shape you into be who He wants you to be. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that the other 12 years are wasted. It just means that the big assignment hasn't been brought yet. See, I didn't understand God's will in the moment. I just under, understood God was calling me. I didn't know what that meant. But as I look back, I can now clearly see in the hindsight, what God was doing. And so now it makes clearly like a huge, a huge, um, I lost my train of thought. Vision, whatever. I don't know. Anyway, let's move on. That's exactly how God works in our life. This happened a lot in my life lately. Y'all pray for me. Uh, it's not that God comes to us and gives this plan out on paper and he says, okay, here's your your one-year chart, here's your two-year chart, your five-year chart, your ten-year chart, you know, here's, here's your road map. No, it doesn't require a lot of faith, does it? If we, if, we, if, we, if we could see all of that. See, God says, you be faithful, you walk in obedience, and later you'll see what God's up to. That's exactly what Jesus told Peter as he was kneeling down washing the feet of Jesus. He's saying to Peter, you don't understand what's going on right now, but you're going to later. In verses 8 and 9, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. You've got, you've got to love the boldness of Peter in this. This isn't the first time Peter says something to Jesus. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's like, Fine then, Jesus. If, if, if I can't have it my way, just give me a bath at this point. 
Just wash all of me. I'll take all of it. If I could just give you one solid piece of advice this morning, church, don't tell God what he has to do. Don't do it. Peter's telling Jesus, you aren't washing my feet. And so what's happening here is you've got this episode of foot washing that's turning into this great symbolic that's actually salvation. And Jesus is telling Peter, if you don't receive my service on your behalf, my cleansing on your behalf, Jesus is looking at him saying, then we don't have relationship. Then we don't have it. He's like, you have no part with me if that's the case. You, you must receive my grace, my love for you. And so if we're completely honest with ourselves this morning, I think we can all relate to Peter. You know, at our very core, we're good, and we, and we all well know that it should not be Jesus washing our feet. There, there's some kind of pride in that that just wells up inside of us to think that we don't need Jesus to wash us and to cleanse us and that we think we can just do it all ourselves. I've been on the road where I thought I could be disciplined enough, that I could be clean enough. I thought I could take care of my own junk and my own baggage. I've been in that life before that I thought I could just handle it. But I think Jesus' message to us is the exact same as it was to Peter that day. You can't clean yourself up. You can't fix yourself. You can't be good enough. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. The best we can do is fall way short. And if we're of the mindset this morning that we are just good enough and that we have it all right, then I would have to ask us to be humble before the Lord this morning. Only Jesus can fix us and only Jesus can redeem us. The message of the gospel is not go clean yourself up, go get yourself right, go get your life together, fix your marriage, fix your house, fix your kids, be better parents, do everything right, and then come to church. That is not the gospel. That is not it. The message of the gospel in the church is you come broken, you come sinful, you come needy, and you let God do the work in you and through you that only He can do, and He can restore you, and He can redeem you. And that is 100% Jesus' message to Peter, and that is our message to the church today. That's it. They're in this moment of pride in Peter's where he's saying, you're not washing my feet. Jesus is saying to Peter, you, you've, got, you've got to receive my love. You've got to receive my grace, my, my service, my forgiveness. You can't fix yourself, but I can. That's, that's the message for all of us today. Wherever it is that you are in your life, you might not be able to do it, but Jesus can. Pastor Thomas can't do it for you, but I know a God that can. I promise you, I can help you. I can talk to you, I can pray with you, but I promise you, Jesus can fix you. Let's continue. I'm going to try to finish up here. John chapter 13, look at verses 10 through 17. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, Do you know that I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. And Jesus is saying this. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, 
servant is not greater than his master. Nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so he knew that Judas was going to betray him, but yet he was still part of the group. He still had the hospitality towards him. And this lesson of foot washing is not that we serve the people that we love the most, it's that we learn to serve the people that aren't like us or may not be in our mind or may be the same class as us. As I said earlier, cross life is the same playing field here. I don't know what it's like when you walk out of this place, but when we're in this place, we're all the same. We're all the same. We, we, we learn to serve our friend. We learn to serve our enemy. We learn to eat at the table together. We're not separated. We bring glory and honor to Jesus. And so Jesus was telling his disciples that faith is not supposed to just be this theological or this philosophical thing, but it needs to be very practical. The, the book of James puts it this way. Faith without works is dead. Meaning, it's absolutely useless. We have to learn to be gracious people. We have to learn to be loving towards others. It's not enough to say that we do it on paper. And as we close this morning, as the worship team comes, it has to be shown in the community. The lesson of foot washing is to lovingly humble ourselves enough to serve the people around us, whether that's a friend or whether that's an enemy. It means giving of ourselves and getting absolutely nothing in return. It means walking in humility despite status of what people think or what people are supposed to obtain. Maybe it's giving somebody a ride or helping in somebody's yard or, or maybe helping with a need. There's countless ways that we can wash somebody else's feet where you don't necessarily get on your hands and knees and use a basin and water. Maybe it is using the basin and the water. But there's other ways to wash people's feet. We love and we serve not because it is something that we get back, but because we do so to bring glory and honor to Jesus. And on this Easter season, as we get ready to journey to Easter, Jesus started by being a servant. He did it by being a servant. So why don't we... On this journey to Easter, over this next four weeks, do our best to be servants of Jesus. And let's start this Saturday morning by joining together, praying together, praying for God to take back this city of Salisbury, North Carolina, and asking God to move over the next four weeks as we move on to Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, in this invitational time, I just pray that there's anybody in this place that's holding on to something. Lord, maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're struggling with life. Maybe they're struggling with a decision. Maybe they're struggling with which way to turn. God, I pray that they would lay it at your feet today. Lord, that they would lay it at the feet of the altar. God, that they would come talk. Lord, maybe they're struggling with a relationship with you. Maybe they need to give their, their life to you today. Lord, and if that's, if that's them, Lord, I pray that you would just prick it on their heart for them to take that step of obedience, that they would give their life over to you in this service. Lord, you just have your will, you have your way during this invitational time, and you move in the way that you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now stand together.
come if you need to come.